Hi, writers. I'm glad you are here for our new episode on the craft of writing fiction. This is Jim Thayer. How many words should we write each day? What should be our pace? Too fast and it might be sloppy. Too slow and we'll never finish our novel. Quote, the secret of becoming a writer is that you have to write, says Jerry Pornell. But how much each day? A look at the output of successful writers might offer a guide. Let's assume a double-spaced manuscript page contains about 300 words. R.F. Delderfield, the English author of Family Sagas, wrote 33 pages every day, and he wrote until 4 o'clock in the afternoon. If he finished a novel at 3 o'clock... He rolled a clean sheet of paper into his typewriter and began the next novel and worked until quitting time. He credited a daily swim in the English Channel for his huge output. Another English author, Charles Hamilton, who used 25 pseudonyms, the most famous being Frank Richards, was so prolific that George Orwell accused him of being a team of writers. Hamilton responded, quote, In the presence of such authority, I speak with diffidence and can only say that, to the best of my knowledge and belief, I am only one person and have never been two or three. That's Charles Hamilton. He wrote a million and a half words a year, or about 20 pages each working day. That's 15 novels of 100,000 words every year, a novel every 24 days, counting Sundays. Earl Stanley Gardner, the author of the Perry Mason novels, wrote a million words a year, which is about 13 pages each working day. Victor Hugo wrote 20 pages each day. John Grisham wrote The Pelican Brief in 100 days and The Client in 6 months. Samuel Johnson often produced 40 printed pages a day. Our founding father, Alexander Hamilton, once wrote 15,000 words, which, had he had a typewriter, would have been 50 pages on the meaning of the Constitution in one night. P.G. Woodhouse wrote 90 books, 20 film scripts, and more than 30 plays and musical comedies. Ezra Pound wrote eight books and a hundred magazine articles in six years between 1908 and 1914. Anthony Trollope wrote Way We Live Now, which has 425,000 words in 29 weeks. But most authors are less frenetic. Jack London wrote between a thousand and 1,500 words each day, which is three to, fi- three to five double-spaced typed pages. Stephen King writes 2,000 words a day, quote, and only under dire circumstances do I allow myself to shut down before I get my 2,000 words. That's Stephen King. He finishes a 180,000-word novel in three months, and he says... 
If I don't write every day, the characters become begin to stale off in my mind. They begin to seem like characters instead of real people. The tale's narrative edge starts to rust, and I begin to lose my hold on the story's plot and, and pace. Worst of all, Stephen King says, the excitement of spinning something new begins to fade. The work starts to feel like work, and for most writers, that is the smooch of death. That's Stephen King. Raymond Chandler agreed, quote, the faster I write, the better my output. If I'm going slow, I'm in trouble. It means I'm pushing the words instead of being pulled by them. And some writers are markedly slow. According to uh, Simon & Schuster editor Michael Corda, Graham Greene, quote, without crossing out anything, and in neat, square handwriting, the letter so tiny and cramped that it looked like an attempt to write the Lord's Prayer on the head of a pin, he wrote over the next hour or so exactly 500 words. End quote. That's Michael Corda. Graham Greene counted each word and would stop for the day at 500, even if he were in the middle of a sentence. Tom Wolfe's novel, A Man in Full, has about 370,000 words, and it took him 11 years to write it. Quote, this is Tom Wolfe, My children grew up thinking that was all I did, write and never finish a book called A Man in Full. That's Tom Wolfe. That many words divided by that many working days in a year indicates he averaged 134 words a day over those 11 years. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings as one novel, which contains about 670,000 words. It took him 11 years, which is 245 words each working day, or a little less than a typed page. Seven years passed between Joseph Heller's Catch-22 and his next novel, Something Happened. Many authors, many of us have other jobs or they, run, or they run a household. When do they find the time to write? Wallace Stegner wrote four hours early in the morning, then went off to teach, first at Wisconsin, then at Harvard, then Stanford. T.S. Eliot worked full-time at a bank. His Biographer Peter Ackroyd says, quote, He would try to rise two hours earlier than was strictly necessary in order to concentrate upon his own writing, and then he would travel to the bank. Stephen King works on his new novel in the mornings. He says, Afternoons are for naps and letters, evenings are for reading, family, Red Sox games on TV, and any revisions that just cannot wait. Basically, mornings are my prime writing time. That's Stephen King. Rudyard Kipling worked in the middle of the day from 10 until 4. John O'Hara would write all night, then would rise in the late afternoon. And Perry says, quote, I work probably 8 or 9 hours a day, 6 days a week. That's Ann Perry. After much procrastination, Harold Robbins would lock himself in a hotel room, hide the clocks, and work around the clock to exhaustion. What can we make of all this? Some writers write fast, some slowly. Some write early in the day, some later. Some all day, 
some at night. Maybe the, be- uh, the great boxing writer, A.J. Liebling, summed it up best. Quote, I can write better than anybody who can write faster, and I can write faster than anybody who can write better. If we don't know yet our writing pace, here are some thoughts. First, for many, for many of us authors, on any given day, it's easier not to write than it is to write because we find writing to be hard work. George Orwell said, writing a book is a long, exhausting struggle like a bout of some painful illness. Both Norman, um, Norman Mailer and Edna Ferber compared writing a novel to giving birth. And as I mentioned before, that sentiment isn't unanimous. The movie producer Irving Thalberg once asked, What's this business of being a writer? It's just putting one word after another. Writing our novel will be easier if we draft a schedule, a a plan, setting our time schedule for the phases of the work. And this, this schedule will organize and prod us, and it'll increase the odds we complete the book. Quote, the true test of whether you're a real novelist isn't that you're working on a book, it's that you finished one, says the novelist Raymond Obstfeld. So after some experimentation, you'll find your own writing pace and the time of day that works best for you. But above all, the first step to being a writer is to get going. As George Bernard Shaw said, the one certain thing is you must write, write, write every day. So here's a suggestion, just just a place to start to see if it works for you. If you have a job or if you run a busy household or if you have commitments as a volunteer, in other words, if you're busy, try to carve out one hour a day for writing. And during that hour, write one page or 300 to 325 words. That's a pretty good output uh, output, and the novel will be completed in a year. If you are finding these podcasts about writing fiction useful and would like to support the show, please hit the support the show button below and it will take you to Patreon and it'd be much appreciated. Let's talk about one of the writer's most important tools, one we should keep in mind as we write. Keep in mind on every page as we write it. It's the use of contrast. I've mentioned this topic before, but I want to dig deeper today. As you know, contrast is a comparison of things to show their differences. Contrasting two things can emphasize each one of them, and that's the technique I want to discuss today. It's important. Visual artists artists know that if you place something black next to something white, each will be more vivid. If you place red next to green, each will sort of vibrate against the other. Rembrandt is famous for this. I was in Amsterdam a couple years ago and at the Rijksmuseum, and I turned a corner and there was Rembrandt's famous painting, The Night Watch, 
which was painted in 1642. It's huge. It's 12 by 14 feet. The background of the painting is dark, and 10 of the people in the painting are, are in the background and are cast in shadows. And the viewer has to sort of search for them. But in the front, uh, Captain Franz Banning Cock is dressed in black with a, vel with a vivid red sash. And his lieutenant, Willem van Reitenberg, is in a yellow uniform with a white sash. A third person in the photo also has the light shining on her, a woman carrying a chicken. The viewer's eyes are captured by these three almost life-size figures. They seem to leap off the canvas due to the fact, due to the contrast between the dark background and the shadowy rear figures with the three main subjects of the painting. If you go to Google Images and type in Rembrandt Night Watch, you'll see this wonderful piece of art. What a genius he was. And part of his genius was the use of contrast. We can do the same thing in our writing. In big things and in smaller, more technical things, here's a list of, of places in our story where we can use contrast. The first is from scene to scene. Raymond Obstfeldt says, quote, Effective scene placement follows the same basic rules as visual arts. Putting contrasting elements next to each other tends to emphasize each work. Putting similar elements next to each other often tends to blend them together. That's Raymond Obstfeldt. Therefore, we should try to put we should avoid putting similar scenes next to each other. An example of how to do this uh, correctly, how to use contrast, is in one of my favorite novels, E.L. Doctorow's Billy Bathgate. The novel's first scene is a desperate situation where the gangster Dutch Schultz has kidnapped Bo Weinberg, taken him out into the New York Harbor, and set his feet in a bucket of cement, and he throws Weinberg in the bucket overboard to drown. This scene is vivid, and it becomes even more vivid because it's followed the next scene. The next scene is a playful scene where the first-person narrator, 15-year-old Billy Behan, is showing off to his friends, juggling. Dutch Schultz passes by. The scene is light and playful, uh, as playful as any scene with a stone-cold killer in it can be, Dutch Schultz. The, the contrast between the first and the second scene is intense, and it helps make both scenes vivid. So if we have a, a tense scene, we should consider following it with a humorous scene, or a, a romantic scene, or an idyllic scene. And vice versa, a romantic scene will be made more romantic if we follow it with a tense scene. Uh, the tense scene will be more tense, and the romantic scene will seem more romantic. This is a, a remarkably effective technique, the change in mood between scene to scene. A second use of contrast is the use of it within a scene. Let's say we have a dramatic 
tense conversation between two of our characters. Sparks are flying. It's a dramatic verbal showdown, maybe one the reader has been waiting for. The characters don't like each other, and they're letting each other know it. It can be made even more dramatic with contrast within the scene. We might have this scene occur on a kindergarten playground with the children in the background swinging and playing tag and laughing. Or we could have this dreadful argument at a party where everyone else is having a great time. The contrast between the argument and the rest of the scene will make the argument more memorable. The argument is in the scene's foreground and the kindergarten or party is in the background. Or we could do the reverse. Our scene is of a fellow asking his lifelong love to marry him. It's romantic. In the background are two dogs fighting or medics giving CPR to someone. The characters are unaware of it. Or the characters in our loving dialogue are inside the house and a terrible storm is rattling the eaves and blowing leaves by. Or maybe their romantic conversation happens in an odd, vivid place. Maybe he is an emergency room physician and he is standing in, in the patient admitting room. A fellow there has a bone showing on his broken arm. Another has his head in his hands and is moaning blood dripping on the floor, and the woman is leaving for Hawaii with her mother who is out in the car. The mom hates the physician, and during the Hawaiian vacation, she's going to try to convince her daughter to turn aside his marriage proposal. For the, for the marriage proposal, it's now or never for them, even in the emergency room. The physician asks her to marry him right there. His words are romantic, and her reaction is glowing but the background is grim. What a great setup. What a strong use of contrast within a scene. It's a powerful tool. A third use of contrast is between characters. A lot of writers, in, including regrettably me, have a tendency to make our characters like ourselves, often unknowingly. We haven't thought about it. So our characters tend to be too similar. A strong use of contrast is to make our characters profoundly different from each other. An example is is in the Harry Potter books. Red-haired Ron is sensible and is always trying to pull back Harry from something too dangerous and impulsive. Hermione is the brilliant one, usually with a good idea, often with a spell she knows that the others don't. The contrast is used between the character, and it makes each of them stand out. Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn are another example. Tom is much more of a homebody, and he constantly dreams of adventure and travel and danger. That's sort of his game in life. Huck lives on the street without a family, not not counting his drunken and absent father. And Huck has street wiles that Tom doesn't have, yet they become blood brothers. The contrast is sharp and emphasizes the traits of both boys. Uh, This contrast between characters in our novel should also apply to villains. The villains should stand in sharp contrast to the hero and the other characters. 
what better example than Stephen King's novel Misery, where the protagonist, Paul Sheldon, is a smart, sensitive, sort of average fellow, while the villain, Annie, is a dangerous psychopath who, during the novel, sinks lower into torture and murder. What a contrast. So we should make all our characters different from each other. Uh, Even better than that, drastically different. Their contrast will make the characters vivid. Another place where we can use contrast is in our settings. Contrast can be used to emphasize settings. An example is from The Great Gatsby, where the Long Island neighborhood of West Egg has mansions, huge gardens, magnificent cars, butlers, maids, and cooks. But the reader of the novel also sees the Valley of Ashes, a dirty industrial area where, quote, ashes grow like wheat, where, quote, ashes take the forms of houses and chimneys and rising smoke, and finally, with a transcendent effort of men who move dimly and already crumbling through the powdery air, where ash-gray men swarm up with leaden spades and skip an impenetrable cloud. Gee, that's good writing. And what a contrast between West Egg. West Egg and the Valley of the Ashes are made intensely memorable by their contrast with each other. One is wealth and glamour, and the other is dirt and work. This is contrast between settings, a a, a terrific tool. A fifth area where contrast works is a a smaller thing, but it's important, the sentence length. A short sentence, which is preceded by long sentences, acts as a, a, a bass drum. Boom. It's an exclamation mark for the earlier sentences, and so the short sentence stands out and is particularly punchy when the reader has just finished several long sentences. Here's an example from Bud Schulberg's famous novel, Butterfield 8. The novel's made into a 1960 movie starring Elizabeth Taylor. Here are three sentences. She recognized, if only vaguely, and then only after conquering with herself, that she had got into the habit of despair. She had come far away from original despair because she had hardened herself into the habit of ignoring the original basic cause of all the despair she could have in her lifetime. There was one cause. The four-word sentence here by Bud Schulberg, there was one cause, emphasizes the earlier two longer sentences. The reader pays particular attention to this drumbeat of a sentence. And here the short sentence is important. It's critical in learning about the woman's troubles. Uh, This sentence length variation isn't an accident from a writer as skilled as, as Bud Schulberg. He wants us readers to pay attention, to hear the single pound of the, of the bass drum in that short sentence. It's an effective technique. Contrast can also be used regarding paragraphs, a couple longer paragraphs followed by a shorter one. The reader will know something important will happen in the shorter paragraph and and will pay extra attention. 
there are probably some other elements in our novels where we can apply the technique of contrast, which escaped me at the moment. In our stories, contrast will make everything more vivid. What a wonderful technique. We have come to the end of this episode. If you'd like to send me a message, I'd like to hear from you. My email address is jimthayerseattle at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys. <laughs>